Welcome to the Double Scoop Podcast. I'm your host, Holly Hutchings. Today's guest is Jessica Schimpf, glassblowing artist from Reno, Nevada. Glass is really special. Uh, not a lot of people do it anymore, and it's kind of a dying art, and it's just, there's magic about it. You know, when I show somebody a piece, there is this, like, excitement and... Um, something to it that's very different from say like woodworking you know when I show people like a woodworking piece like oh it's cool show them glass they're like oh my god what is what is this this story is part of a special four-part series on art and mental health if you need any help with your mental health please reach out for support in a sweltering downtown Reno warehouse-like space Jessica Schimpf melts molds flattens and shapes glass In this space, her shop called Mantra Glass Art, she is surrounded by old-timey hand tools that she uses to crimp and bend hot glass, as well as a crucible, the more modern oven that feverishly bakes the glass to about 2,000 degrees in preparation for the material to take on its next form. Are you guys ready? So I'll just have you stand back right here, and let me turn on my glass. Approaching peak heat, glass pellets inside the oven begin to smooth together as they liquefy. It liquefies at about, let me think, 15, no, about 1200 degrees. It's, it turns into a liquid, but it's not perfect. It's not the viscosity that we need. Once it reaches 2100, it's the perfect viscosity. It feels like honey. Literally, if you kind of dip into honey, that it like moves really fast. That's what I'm looking for. The gooey glass starts out as a layer of little solid chips of pure glass, the best quality that she can find. Then it's processed into custom hand-blown creations. There are a couple of different glass blowing methods. Jessica blows glass at the temperature that Italians do. The Italians are like the hottest you could be, but you have to work really, really fast with it. Really dangerous, really scary. But thankfully I learned from people that did that method. Um, A lot of Americans take their sweet time. It's really cold. They work at cooler temperatures at times. Um, Makes it much harder, much longer to make a piece, if that makes sense. Her work consists of chandelier lighting and pendant lights for your home, a la Architectural Digest. She also makes memorial pieces to help grieving loved ones, as well as different glass installations. She's been in glass blowing for nearly a dozen years, but she says, quote, successfully for about six. Not only does she love this work, it's meaningful. She has a sister who works in child protective services, and Jessica took the more artsy path. Her dad used to tell her that her work mattered just as much. And he would always say, like, you're my special kid. You're going to do something amazing, and your sister is talented. She's going to save babies, but you're going to be the shining star that does something different. She is a shining star, and what she did, my sister is in child protective services. She saves human beings' lives every week, and she goes to court dates and fights for these kids and intuitively knows things and like my sister is incredible and then here my dad is like you're gonna make a kid and I'm like I'm making artwork and this person's saving people's lives like oh my god I need to reevaluate my life but he would say to me go with it art is just as important as what your sister does it affects people Both her artistic chops and anxiety started to bloom when she was little. My first memory ever, I was probably four or five, and I was sitting behind our house, 
And I, my dad gave me a little pocket knife and he was like, be really careful with this, but I think you're kind of a sculptor. And I would sit and just carve wood and just like sit out there and he would just be like, what are you doing? And I had no idea. I just had to create. With stressors in her childhood, she felt anxious at home, dealing with the dynamics of parents who fought. She was also a sweet kid without the tools to express herself and often felt isolated. The anxiety really hit when I realized I was sensitive, different, I'm an observer, I'm more introverted, kind of an artist. And um, everyone around me wasn't like that. And I was, I felt like I didn't fit in, like I was an outcast. Um, And it wasn't actually until I met my best friend, Sarah, who also is obsessed with art. We met very young, um, probably around 13. That was the first time I realized that, wow, there are other artists out there, sensitive types, spiritual types, deeper people. Um, And I think that anxiety has always been around just because, again, I didn't fit in. I didn't feel like part of a normal group. I always knew I was different. And that's really hard as a kid because no one tells you that's okay. Um, my mom would always be like, you know, you're, you're getting picked on and let's talk about this. I would just shut down and just go inwards and then wouldn't be able to talk about it. So I think that's probably where it really started, um, not knowing why I was so different, too. The little girl who whittled wood began finding feelings of safety in artistic pursuits. Now she sees the angst in those years as a good thing. It's good, though. It makes me strong now. I think that was uh, the best thing that could have ever happened because it pushed me more towards art. That's what I found, art and music through that, which was really beautiful. One of the only female glass-blowing artists in the Italian style, she's super proud to have earned her place here. It has not always been an easy journey. At times along the way, as she, essentially solo, found herself fulfilling big, often fancy orders, she felt like a poser. All the time. Actually, I was... (laughs) Funny you bring that up. I was listening to a interview with Billie Eilish. She's one of my favorites. She has tics and all these things. And that really opened my eyes to musicians having anxiety and different disorders. Um, And she brought up imposter syndrome. And I, you know, I never really resonated with that. I was kind of like, eh, that's not me. But for a while, it actually was. I think for maybe four or five years there, before the version of who I am now, there was a point that I was like, I am faking this. This is like, wow, this is really scary. If some, you know, people find out I'm not a big company, what are they going to think of me? I always use the word they, but it was always just individual, just me working. I made it seem bigger than it was. Um, I was always terrified of that. Yeah, that, that really affected my anxiety because I felt like, oh my God, if somebody finds out that we're not a big company, it could ruin everything. It's understandable to have your confidence rattled in a space like this where historically women weren't allowed to participate. This is the first time in any century that women are even invited into studios, and that's a very scary thing. So I think the imposter syndrome also comes with women have been told. I mean, when I grew up in glassblowing, I I literally was told from every man I've ever worked with, you could never own a studio. You can't even lift the bags of glass. You can't you know, maintenance, the equipment, you're not big enough to, to do these things. That's where I started realizing um, there was a real problem in glassblowing with men just being the studio owners and taking over. Um, what ended up happening was that when maybe about eight years ago, seven years ago, women started coming out through the woodwork saying, no, we are capable of this. We're going to learn this. Um, that's when I kind of got the courage to say to myself, like, I'm going to do this. I 
no matter what anybody says, I'm going to figure it out in my own way. I just have smaller equipment, those types of things. Um, but that added to the anxiety horribly because when you're told in an industry, you know, as a, as a female, um, that you can't do something, you believe them because you don't see women as, as glass blowers. You don't see women as studio owners. Um, and kind of a fun fact is that of all the glass blowers in this country, there may be like 500 of us left that do the soft glass side. Um, so it's the Italian method. It's a very different type of glass. Um, out of that 500, there may be our 10 to 15 studio owner, owners that are solely female running it by themselves. So if you think about that statistic, I'm one of 15 out of 500. That's really scary. But she says that that scary number also showed her that she needed to do this work. She says that if she has children, she wants them to know that there was sort of a glass renaissance with women taking over the profession. She sees women becoming studio owners and joining teams of glass blowers. She says there is still more room for diversity in glass and appreciates conversations being held about minority glass blowers also building the community. Many of us assume that making art is a way to absolve our anxiety, when the truth is that's not always the case. Sometimes making art causes the feelings that we're striving to avoid. For Jessica, the glassblowing studio is a business she loves, and one that sparks a ton of physical and mental angst. Um, glassblowing is highly fight or flight. Um, meaning that when I come into the studio, it is usually 95 to 100 degrees. I get very sick within the first uh, five to 10 minutes. It's very normal for females. Their body temperature can't regulate. She's actually done studies on this when she was younger. She'd take a heat sensor and put it on her skin, then put another on a man's skin, and then test the two genders multiple times. Men hit really high temperatures and came back down to homeostasis. Women, it's like our bodies flip out. It can't figure out what it's doing. And then after an hour, it finally calms down and you hit homeostasis. So imagine a man just walks into a studio and he's fine. He doesn't feel the heat. For me, I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to throw up. I don't feel good. I go through a process of like drinking water, eating, like calming myself down, calming down my nerves, like centering myself. Then I can perform. It's highly intense. And while going through all of this, she's facing seriously dangerous work. Pieces can explode in your face. I've had that happen all the time. Um, when I was younger, when you don't quite know what you're doing, you kind of, through glass blowing, you have to experience like when things break and how to not do that. So it's a really like brutal art form. Not to mention there's fans going on and so much noise. I have an air pump. All this stuff is happening and I'm kind of in this space of how do I get my anxiety down from the moment I step into the shop? Thankfully, she kind of likes the frantic feelings. But it also really affects my life. I, I think I go home and I would still be in fight or flight mode. Um, and that's something I've worked with therapists where they were like, oh, my God, what are you doing to yourself? You are like here all day, you know, super like crazy and all this stuff going on. You get home and you're still at that level. So you have to practice kind of coming down from that, meditating, doing something where you're not in fight or flight mode. Um, so glass blowing naturally triggers my anxiety. So really bad choice as a career, but, but I love it so much that I have said to myself, it's worth that. I'm going to figure out how to manage that. The job defined her and also stressed her out. But Jessica had the rest of her life pretty much dialed in 
and was working on the anxiety she felt from glass. It became too much when a series of life events hit, like back-to-back storms. Well, really, so COVID started. Everything was really balanced in my life. Or I felt like it was balanced, but it wasn't really. But I was, I was happy. I was genuinely happy, but running myself ragged through glass, like obsessed with glass, constantly here, not taking breaks, not taking care of myself. Then my father passed. Uh, Three months later, my brother-in-law passed uh, very unexpectedly. He was so upset about my dad's death that he kind of took a wrong turn and didn't take care of himself, and it got really bad, and he passed. Um, And he was very young. And three months after that, my grandmom passed. Then my fiancé left me. Then my cat died. Um, And I'm laughing because it's just such a string of events that, like, no one prepares for that, right? But it, it altered my entire world. And I think it had to happen because I wasn't doing what was right for me. It, it was like the universe was like, oh, no, this, nope, you're not doing anything right. You're hitting a wall. You need to grow up and you need to figure this out at this point. So for me, it was really, um, I think, breaking up with somebody I'd been with for so long and having these like expectations of marrying this person, all this stuff, it destroyed my world. And I kind of like, yeah, it was like a reset. Where I was like, nothing's right. This is really bad. <laughs> like, this is this is rock bottom for me. She began to come back to the notion that work may not matter as much as she once thought. Work isn't everything. Work is kind of nothing at that point when you lose your partner. Um, my dad died. I'm sorry. Uh, there was like a lot of stuff that kind of happened that I realized like I didn't enjoy those moments as much. I was obsessed with work. I'd be kind of fishing with my father on the boat and then looking at my email. You know, it's it woke me up a lot to I don't want to miss that again. I don't want to miss my nieces growing up and sorry. <laughs> it's really hard to talk about. Um, work can definitely destroy you in a way. She says at this point, she wasn't developing herself in any other capacity. She wasn't engaged in anything spiritual or emotional and wasn't going to therapy. And it actually hit a point where somebody said that to me, like, what are you doing to make your life better besides glass? And I really had to think about that and come to terms with like nothing, (laughs) you know, I'm not doing anything. Um, So this year has been a huge revolution. I think uh, after Christmas, when I came back and a lot of, a lot of really bad stuff happened, um, I kind of sat down and said like, who am I outside of this? I'm going to stop this for a second. And I'm going to kind of investigate the anxiety, the, the depression, these things and say like, why is this happening? And where can I go from there? And why aren't I doing, why aren't I writing? Why aren't I writing music anymore? setting boundaries with her time in the studio, working with therapists, and practicing self-care. In the thick of her work in the glassblowing studio and growing her business, she had missed out on over four years of playing music, her soul-level creative love. And she began making more time for that again, too. She says that music gives her the space to be as anxious as she wants. She can cry and freak out and search for the right words for her feelings and try to share that through her music, mostly her guitar. 
After a long, hot day of filling orders, or when anxiety or sadness take hold, she turns to music. And it's something that I do for me. That's that's the big thing, is that this is, glass wine's for other people. I've always kind of said that. Music, when I go home at night and I get to relax and do what I want, that's my time to create. And that's only for me. And then, like you were saying, you know, I get to kind of choose it if I want to put it out there. Um, like you were saying with your writing, that's that's a selective thing. So it feels a little safer for me, if that makes sense. Kind of, yeah. Gives me a voice at the end of the day, and when I'm hurting, like this week has been just such an awful week for anxiety, depression, just feeling it. It's really been a rough week for me. Um, those are the moments I get to ho- go home and kind of be in solitude and let everything out, and it's not, it's unscripted. I don't have to be this like perfect person in the studio. I have an assistant, I have people coming in, I have to be, you know, on point and mentally focused and not anxious. Um, in my home when I'm writing music, I can be as anxious as I want, and it's, and it's fine. Um, and that's why I like music, and that's why I write every day. Now I go home and I play for hours, and I just I refuse to let that escape my life again. Creating glass sculptures, sparkly, dangly chandeliers, or writing expressive lyrics, the art of making helps Jessica get through the revolving emotions that life brings. Through her crafts, she says that she is ready to face what comes next. Thank you to Jessica Shimp for sharing her time, her story, and her many talents. You can see some of Jessica's work in the exhibition currently going on titled I'm Okay, I'm Not Okay along with the other podcast guests from this season. It's at UNR through August 5th. You can also find Jessica online or at Mantra Glass Art in Reno. You've been listening to episode 24 of the Double Scoop podcast. This episode was written, researched, and produced by me, Holly Hutchings. Our theme music comes from Reno singer-songwriter Greg Gilmore. It's a clip from his song, Who Am I? Beats in this episode were provided by the artist Young Trash Boat, and additional music in this episode comes from Jessica Schimpf. This episode is part of a special four-part series on art and mental health. It was made possible by a grant from Nevada Humanities and the National Endowment for the Humanities. You can find more of the Double Scoop podcast and past episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or by visiting doublescoop.art. That's doublescoop.art. This is Holly Hutchings. Thank you so much for listening.